0: Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia Success Podcast, where we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. On this show, I work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. What's up, everybody? Justin here. I want to start this episode with a special message. Uh, I'm going to be Doing some more uh, like unique one-time type of episodes in between their regularly scheduled programming on a weekly release schedule to do coronavirus updates and talk to physicians in unique places of leadership, of operations, administration, and clinical activities over the coming weeks, just to provide resources for you, our listeners, to... Talk about what's going on, what are people seeing and doing, what's been working. I'm obviously not a public health expert. I'm not a doctor, but I want to facilitate as many of these conversations with people who are doing really great work as possible. I would also love to hear your feedback during this time if there's anything that would be helpful as far as things that you want to hear on the podcast or even other resources that you're finding helpful that you could direct my attention to that I could call out on the show. That would be great. As always, thanks for listening. On a personal note, you know, as a physician spouse, I'm deeply grateful for the sacrifices that our men and women in white coats are making right now to help keep the public safe and during a very scary time, it's sobering and also heartening to see how quickly physicians are just throwing themselves into harm's way, yeah, in ways where there's you know there's not a lot of certainty right now, but one thing is certain, and that's the the spirit of self sacrifice that exists in the anesthesia community and beyond is something that is really awesome and frankly, like our society is going to benefit massively from in ways that they don't even understand or appreciate. So from me to you, thanks for the work that you're doing. Keep it up. Keep your chin up. Hug somebody today. Well, no, don't hug them. Give them, well, maybe an air high five because we're in this together. And then one quick note about the upcoming episode, the audio quality is a little sketchy on the front end. Uh, I'm talking with Dr. Shelley Farrell from Germany and our internet connection was a little bit patchy, but uh, things get better a few minutes in. So I think this is really excellent content and would love for you to check it out. So if it's a little weird up front, hang in there, it gets better. Thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. We have a very special guest today, who I'm really, <laughs> I'm really excited to be speaking with, Dr. Shelley Farrell. If you recognize the voice who is about to follow mine, it's probably because you've listened to his podcast, the Anesthesia Wise Guys podcast. Uh, I have enjoyed the bits of non-clinical content that they have shared over the years, and I'm really excited to have him joining us from Germany today to talk about how they've responded in their anesthesia department there in light of the way that COVID is evolving there in the southern part of germany so dr farrell thank you very much for joining us today
1: thank you for having me justin it's uh, kind of a, a privilege for us because my podcast is just kind of a, a mom and pop like recorded in my attic or basement wherever we can get in so you know kind of getting to branch out a little bit is kind of exciting for me so uh so thank you for having having me on as a guest i'm sorry my, my normal co-host can't uh tune in they're in various stages of quarantine slash forking slash unavailable so uh you, you unfortunately only get me
0: well, we're, I'm very pleased to be speaking with you today and thanks. I know things are very hectic. They're, they're getting pretty crazy here in Philadelphia as well. So I'm really interested. Maybe just give us a brief description of kind of what your current situation is as well as like, you know, how long you've been in Germany. I know you were in the States, you were in the Army, you were at University of Kentucky on the faculty there for a while. Uh, and then describe for us like what's what's going on there?
1: Yeah, so for our listeners, uh, I've I've kind of bounced around a little bit by my choice. Uh, So I did a military residency and then served in the U.S. Army for eight years total, including my residency time. Uh, When I finished my service obligation, uh, I took a faculty appointment at the University of Kentucky and taught residents for six years there. And then when I was active duty Army, Uh, my wife and I kind of mutually agreed that if we had an opportunity to ever like make it over to Europe to a a duty assignment over here. And then uh, they got short-staffed and launched all Germany. And uh, the Army opened up a contract with uh, a contracting company that uh, is my employer, and they got me over to Germany. So uh, I ended up resigning my position at the University of Kentucky, of which I am in talks with our our former chair to go back there. So it's a two-year contract here. I plan to go back to Kentucky in in two years, but uh, just kind of a It's a midlife crisis without buying a house, a car, or getting divorced.
0: That sounds like a great uh, little excursion for your family. And uh, obviously, when we had started talking, you know, we were interested in talking about, oh, let's do like a career overview, talk about your experience in the Army, and and talk about some personal finance stuff that I had done. And since then, obviously, the coronavirus situation has been evolving very, 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 very quickly.
1: Yeah, it's... uh... It's definitely a, a different landscape now. Yeah.
0: I know like at the beginning of last week, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm aware of it. I can see the impact that it's having on markets. And then I, I listened to a podcast. It was the, the Joe Rogan podcast with the epidemiologist from University of Minnesota. And then I was on like red alert. And then I'm, you know, all the doctors that I'm following on Twitter who are all it, the, the thing that's really alarming to me is like, it seems like all the people who know the most about what's going on are the most alarmed and especially as it relates to healthcare policy and public health, like the types of changes that we're trying to implement at a broad society level, it's, it feels very urgent. And so I'm really interested to hear, you know, what's, what's the climate like right now? Describe a little bit about the hospital that you're working at, and, uh, and what kind of precautions are you guys taking?
1: I work at uh, Landstuhl Regional Medical Center. So it's a U.S. Army hospital in uh, Landstuhl, Germany, which is about an hour, hour and 10, 20 minutes from southwest of Frankfurt. So it's kind of a staging area that the Army's used for a very long time. It's it's kind of gotten a little bit more of a a platform uh, for the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, where it's kind of a stopping point. For war wounded that are, you know, stable, unstable-ish and kind of need to like not be flying and get to like a medical team. So that's kind of our, our primary mission. But uh, in, in times when we're not quite so busy with the with, uh, warfighter movement, then, you know, we do regular community hospital stuff like hernias and gallbladders and, you know, orthopedic surgeries. And, you know, so, you know, it's probably right now in 2020, it's probably about, you know 80 percent like routine community type cases and then like 20 percent uh things that have have gone awry in a, a forward operating space and and need kind of some advanced medical uh, attention from trauma management or icu care what have you so that's kind of the the snapshot of our hospitals that you know we have uh, capabilities for trauma And for, you know, ICU, albeit we don't have a a giant ICU, it's not like where I came from at the University of Kentucky. That's a a very large level one trauma center that's, you know, equipped to handle a lot of like just chaos all the time. So we're kind of, you know, get it, treat it and fly it out. So this particular type of issue among the, the healthcare climate is... We really kind of are, are getting ahead of it as much as we can with, uh, you know, the good thing we have is that, you know, the primary population that we serve here is military population. Military population is fairly compliant because they follow orders like this is their jam. They're like, you know, you do this. Yes, sir. sleep so flag will do that. So um, we don't have quite the same uh social challenges as you know as what I would expect at our civilian hospital at the University of Kentucky and I'm talking with some of my friends there I haven't I don't really have a good picture for that yet I haven't gotten Into that, with enough of my friends there to really get a picture of what it's like in Lexington right now. But um, we are, uh, you know, we have the control of like, you know, everybody's paycheck is going to hit. So the financial aspect of it isn't quite as uh, big a footprint for us, where like you don't work your hours, you don't get your paycheck. Like, you know, that's a problem. Um, So, you know, our our work units are able to shut down the shutdown, like the child development centers, which is like the equivalent of like daycare for military. So, you know, parents are staying kind of home with kids and, Uh, You know, travel has been restricted to just, you know, like, you know, kind of everybody's kind of planning to kind of stay home-ish because the the epidemiological impact that we're uh, starting to understand from, you know, the professionals that are kind of breaking this down is that the infectivity of this particular virus is substantial. So, you know, the things that we know so far, we know that it's very uh, detrimental to immunocompromised patients. Fortunately, we don't have a whole lot of those within the military landscape, but we do have a lot of retirees here that do get care at our hospital. So secondarily, we also know it's not great. Like, you know, the the numbers for morbidity and mortality start to go up substantially as we start to get like, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80. So uh, the footprint of that is to kind of prevent the spread Population-wide, uh, to kind of get it to be a you know a little bit of a, a smoldering slow burn rather than like a raging fire that just blasts through, because most healthcare facilities are going to have a very finite amount of resources like ventilators. Uh, you know, an ECMO is not really a, a capability that we have here. Um, we have ECMO teams that can fly to us if we need that, but that's you know kind of on a case-by-case basis. That's not a you know en masse like 20 patients. Like that's that's a bad day. That's that's a day that we're we're not gonna get to save as many lives as what we want, just because we don't have that infinite pool of resources. So um, you know, so those are some of our c- kind of concerns in terms of like this is we're in an opportunity an opportunistic window right now like where we are in germany to get ahead of it so we've closed down clinics the dental clinics have been closed um we're really trying to kind of uh you know kind of snuff down the you know build those break walls so the fire doesn't rage out of control um, that's kind of where we're at right now you know elective cases are being canceled uh, we're actually doing something that I, i'm assuming our department chief uh kind of was spearheading this uh so it came from somebody a lot smarter than me it's a brilliant idea but um, the way that we're staffed, so we have um, active duty reservists, uh, GS, which is like a government service. It's like basically the – it's like you're paid by the Army, but you're not in the Army. You, you play by some of the rules, but not all of the rules. You know, It's generally a good benefits package, good retirement, um, but it's not like uh, – you're not like fully in the Army. So it's kind of a, an in-between for like me. Like I'm a contractor, so I get paid by a U.S. company. I get a 401k, um, you know, I've got life insurance, health insurance, dental insurance, kind of conventional civilian model, but like I'm an employee of this contracting company. So, um, so in that landscape of who our providers are, we've compartmentalized into like teams. So it's like, you know, one, two or three docs and, and CRNAs and that's your team. So, like, we might work on, like, Wednesday and Thursday and then have a few days off and we come back next week on, like, you know, Monday and Tuesday. And so that way we're not having uh, department cross-contamination of, like, you know, I work with Bob and then I work with Joey and then I work with, you know, whoever. And, you know, if somebody gets infected, it's a crapshoot of who goes down. Like, you might get a wider spread of the infection, but if you're just working with the same people all the time, if one person goes down, then you can still, you know, the team stands up. So. Um, but that was kind of a clever way to to compartmentalize it, at least among the healthcare personnel, so that we're not swapping it around between each other, round robin, that it's it's more of a, a contained, uh, you know, uh, pocket there, whereas, you know, we can take a hit here and there, but we're not like decimating the whole department.
0: So how big is the, you know, the anesthesia or critical care department? How many staff are we talking about where you're coordinating these efforts?
1: Um, so... Honestly, I'd have to sit and count how many anesthesiologists we, we... So we have bodies that are allocated to us, but they're not permanent party. So we have a combat support hospital that's attached to our facility that has, uh, I think, three or four anesthesiologists that are tied in with that, and but they're not like permanent party. Like they'll come work for like a few days a week or a day a week, and then they have to go do like army things where they're training and setting up a combat support hospital. And then sometimes they get rotated out for... What we call hearts and minds missions, where um, like they'll go to Africa for like a couple of weeks, two or three, or four weeks, and they'll do uh, medical missions there if like there's some sort of like weird Ebola outbreak, then they get rolled out for that. So it's just kind of a mobile team that uh, they stay with a hospital unit to uh to keep their core skills up so they're not just completely atrophying but uh they like can get snatched away from that environment like the snap of your fingers so we've got that one group we've got our our dedicated active duty people that are probably uh i think there's five or six anesthesiologists that fall in that group and then we have our uh gs and contractors including me and there's probably uh two or three of us that that fill those slots and then uh we have um reservists that are activated for like you know 30 to 90 days at a time so we have those bodies that kind of filter through and at any given time we may have two or three of those sometimes we might not have any so um so that's kind of the the constitution of our md anesthesiologist now our nurse anesthetists kind of also fall in that that grouping as well we have several nurse anesthetists i i, I can't venture a guess as to how many we i guess maybe we have 10 nurse anesthetists in that same kind of structure of like active duty and combat support hospital and uh you know contract and uh you know gs and reservist
0: and i was just looking at the uh you know the, the hopkins map um that seems to be like a pretty good source of updated information i'm i didn't realize germany is actually like on the short list of top handful of countries as far as total cases counted um can you talk talk a little bit about like the the public health response how's testing going how's isolation and like social distancing going there and how has that been communicated has it been coordinated
1: so um you know honestly the the we don't consume the german media so like newspapers and uh like german television and and things like that so I don't have as much exposure to like the the German speaking aspect of it, but just in like the like I'll give you for, for example for like what you would see like not connected to like internet or newspaper things like that like going to to Kroger like a grocery store in the United States you're gonna see magazines and newspapers and like all of that media stuff that's it's pretty like you know weekly cycled or two weeks cycled. they really don't have that here so that that type of presence. Uh, you know that I would expect, and and you know Germany doesn't have quite the same technological plug-in that we have in the United States. Like people have smartphones here, and and you know there there's that access to it in that way, but like it's not like the United States. Like you'll walk into like a doctor's waiting room, like a TV go and and all this other. It's not like that here. There's no TV. There's no um, so the the blast of like media everywhere you go from like uh, the grocery store to the you know to the doctor's office to like the bank or you know where they don't have that here so like i don't know how the average german actually consumes their media but in terms of like social interaction like uh, uh our next door neighbors uh were going to a, a birthday party um at one of the german like uh they've, they've got these like indoor swim areas here they're fantastic like you know just fun places to take your kids, go swimming. But with this, like on Saturday, it was really not populated. So like, you know, the the Germans were participating in, in isolation, but then on Sunday, my wife and I went to a, uh, there's a like a, a mile and a half from our house. There's like this little uh, hut that's outside, and they serve you know uh, typical German foods like knockwurst and bratwurst and currywurst and uh, you know pizza on a baguette and beer. And so we walked down there with our dogs, and it was it's outside, so you know people aren't on top of one another, but it was it was pretty busy. They're probably there's probably seventy or eighty people in in a radius of something that would be like. Uh, maybe like half of like a college football stadium. So it's a, it's a big area and people aren't on top of one another. But like, you know, everybody's kind of kind of congregated around. There's a, a line up to like the little shack where people are going to get their food and beer and um so there's not that like overt fear of it. The grocery stores are not crushed here. I know and talking with a lot of my friends there that there's been a lot of kind of like uh you know bye bye bye, you know for all we're getting that is not the case here my wife literally just came from the grocery store three hours ago and it looks like a normal day so um germans also don't like buy and store things like we do like in your in your house i mean you've got a fridge that could hold enough food for you and your wife and a couple kids for like probably a week or two our primary refrigerator that came with the house that we're renting right now is the size of like what i had in college and like a dorm fridge that's it that's what came with the house it's like built into like the kitchen cabining the freezer part of it literally if i could put like a stouffer's like you know french bread pizza in there that's about it that's it so we actually had to buy i mean i've got uh five children now Uh, We had to buy another refrigerator and they don't really sell like big refrigerators. Like I bought kind of a a bigger ish, but it literally will hold uh, it's got three drawers that would hold probably the equivalent of like, I don't know, maybe three or four like soft drink cans each. And that's the size of the freezer part. And then the refrigerator part, uh, you know, will hold like, you know, like a watermelon and like getting a full size pizza box in there like you have to bend the pizza box it doesn't fit straight up so um so they just they're not really built to like store a lot of like perishable food and the typical german will go to the grocery store like the way they're structured here is not like the united states they're like it's like a village and then the villages are like where the people live and then even like the the rural areas that are like agriculture where people are farming and doing things like that there's uh like they live in the village and they walk or drive out to their to their farm. You can literally walk doggone near anywhere here uh, just because of the way, like, you know, these villages were all built before, like, there was a lot of, like, husbandry, like animals and stuff. So there's no fences. Like, you can walk from village to village, and uh, the train networks go to, like, all of the villages. So, you know, if it's simple a little bit further, you can take a train. Like, you don't really have to have a car here. It's fascinating. Um, but with that type of, uh, you know, it's kind of built to be isolated. Like it's not hard for the Germans. They go about their, their day-to-day life. They want to travel somewhere they can. They've got access to the, the train network, but they just want to sit and hang out and, you know, walk to the grocery store or ride their bike or whatever. Like it's, it's, uh, it's a very pedestrian abled community that, uh, can exist on a micro or macrocosm, uh, just because of the way it's structured like our, our the little neighborhood segment that we live in, um, there are a lot of multi-family homes. There are a lot of units that will have like three or four families living in. It. It's in a house that's like, there's so much variation in the country. It'd be difficult to, to compare something. If you can imagine like a, maybe like a Holiday Inn Express that would be maybe like four rooms of that kind of like mashed together. But Germans spend a lot of time outside. Like the houses, like you go in and you, you know, eat and sleep and go to the bathroom there. But like, You know, a lot of Germans spend a lot of time just like outside doing, you know, going to work or doing outdoor things. They're not, they're not, there's not a lot of homebound people.
0: Yeah. Has there been uh, like public health guidance in Germany that has, I mean, in in the States here, it's like sort of like dominoes falling and it's one by one. It's like going from recommended, uh, you know social distancing to like mandatory shutdown of non-essential businesses in certain areas. And then they're ramping up the, you know, 250 or smaller gatherings outlawed down to in the state of Washington. Now they say no more than 25. And I I expect that that's going to keep on sort of the bar is going to keep on getting lower. Is there anything like that that's happening right now?
1: No, that I mean, there's no like militaristic presence of like they're really hammering out hard numbers for like it's just kind of like the culture is is different from the standpoint of like they adult better than we do. Like in the United States, it's almost like, you know, the the municipalities and the the local governments and even the the state and national government, they're very parental in terms of the way that like responding to this because Americans are very rebellious. Germans are not like that, like. In in general, like most people like drive the speed limit. Like in the Autobahn where you can drive like however you want, that's why they have that. Like if you want to go drive fast, you go drive fast there. But like in a village, like no, you don't drive like, you know, ninety kilometers an hour in a thirty kilometer zone. You just like you don't do bonehead things. And if you if you do things like that, you are very much socially like outcast, like you know that there's a lot of self-policing here for things like that. Like you're expected to, you know, with great freedom comes great responsibility. Like don't be a
0: butthead. That's the, I guess, the two-edged sword of the uh, spirit of American rugged individualism is that in times like this, it just looks like mass idiocy, where we're looking at, you know, pub crawls on St. Patty's Day and like these fist-bumping dance parties in these clubs in some some of the cities here, and it's just like you just have to smack your forehead.
1: Yeah, the Germans don't seem to be doing that. They're very into like following rules. There's not—I haven't seen like just flagrant like people being, you know, clowns about things. So you know, there's reasonable social distancing, but that's like the normal here. It's not like somebody's like right up behind you in like line at the at the grocery store at the gas pump. That, but that's like that's normal. That was that was the, the social interaction before this stuff started. It's not like you know people aren't—they don't just crowd in on one t- one another.
0: Is there a sense that the growth rate of things with Corona in Germany or other elsewhere on the European continent is like, obviously North Italy is kind of ground zero for the, the warning. And
1: geographically, that's not terribly far from Germany. I mean, the the Alps are kind of geographically what separate, you know, Switzerland and, and Austria to a certain degree are, are there as well. But um, I think there was enough of a an affect of Italy and then Germany paying enough attention. They're like, Oh crud, this is like, this is the thing. Because I think initially, much like most of the world, you know, everybody kind of just discounted it like, you know, it's the flu will be fine. But, the, you know, the two things that we realized kind of as, as it was happening in Italy is that number one, uh, this is an incredibly infectious agent. Like it, its transmission is, uh, is substantial. Like it's a thing. And then number two, uh, we don't have herd immunity to this. So it's going to sweep through like wildfires so in the the experience of fatalities yes it's good that we've pointed out that you know the age groups there are certain ones that are going to be more at risk than others but you know like i pointed out earlier in the podcast like you know we still have a substantial amount of the population that's that's aged you know 50 60 70 and when they get sick they get really sick and, and that, you know, requires a lot of, of resource consumption. And then when you couple it in the fact that, like, you know, it's it you start to take out the healthcare workers that are also kind of falling like dominoes with it. But in terms of the the German hospital experience, I, you know, I don't work in, in one of the German hospitals, but my wife did deliver a baby in one, uh, you know, in January.
0: Congratulations. Well, thank you. A little a little ray of sunshine in a time of like some deep concern.
1: Yeah. Well, at the same time, I've got a a two month old at home. So we're kind of like, well, you know, kind of playing it close to the vest.
0: Yeah. We have a three month old here. So
1: (laughs) yeah, well, you're in the same boat.
0: So are there any concerns about like supply constraints, PPE or like ventilators or beds or staff, you know, to be able to, if sort of the rising tide continues to the extent that you expect that, do you feel like you're going to be able to meet the demands for, for incoming patients?
1: So we have the ability to expand to like wartime surge the military stockpiles things all over the place. So we have rudimentary abilities for kind of like, you know, to be able to take care of, of someone in a stable environment so we can kind of like ship them around to a bigger space. So in terms of like, you know, expansiveness, uh, you know, we can, we can absorb a lot of that. Uh, but, in the same time, depending on how much of the stress level is, it would also be an, an avenue where we would have to kind of move bodies around to compensate for the workload. so we have you know the space and the equipment for it, uh, but right now our personnel would have to be augmented We, we could kind of get the ball rolling and, and get it started, but it would be a situation where if we didn't get uh, you know kind of reinforcements you know within a, a week or two that it would be it would become overwhelming
0: do you do you feel like there is a, a place? from which those reinforcements can be drawn? Or is it, I mean, it's not hard to imagine in the States here, and I don't wanna be alarmist, but I'm looking at some of these numbers and some of these growth rates in some places, as well as some other locales in the States where there seems to be like total a bl- a blind eye being turned, where I, I have to think that uh, it may be all hands on deck back home pretty soon.
1: Yeah, so the nice thing about the military is that depending on the, the relative need and the way that they're communicating, Uh, If something's really bad, we can generally get the bodies moved where we need them. Uh, That being said, it's very uh, uh, disconnecting for like, you know, someone that lives in like San Antonio or Washington, D.C., you know, to all of a sudden get loaded up onto a plane like, hey, you're heading to Germany and you're going to be there for some time period. We don't know how long, but like get your butt over there now so um there's that degree of disruption that like if if something's bad enough like things happen like that you know there there are orders and and things that have to have to go down but if something gets really sideways um you know we have that ability just to kind of like you know drop orders move people and and you know because the military has its own network of you know helicopters and planes and lions and tigers and bears oh my that's one of the reasons that i want to come back to military hospitals military personnel are generally very selfless like you know, they're they're used to kind of getting knocked around a little bit because it's you know Uncle Sam does what Uncle Sam does and sometimes it's in the service members' best interest and sometimes it isn't um, but generally it's uh, you know sometimes you get you get the thing that you don't want but you know maybe the next time we'll get you the thing that you want because we know that you you know took one for the team to, to take this job that nobody else wanted but you know we can we can help you up on the back end so um, so we have that access to those resources in terms of like, uh, you know, we're not, we're not on an island by ourselves. it's just that we have to be built to survive a lean time for, you know, for a while. Um, you know, the, the, the cavalry will come It's just the, 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 how the machine will move to get us the, the things that we need, you know, where we need them.
0: I'm sure there's a lot of things from an organizational and like a mindset and, a, just a scale standpoint that, you know, you're uniquely, you could argue like the army hospital is uniquely positioned. You know, if you kind of look at historically, if there's a big battle and all of a sudden you get like a thousand people that show up, that are all like in bad shape, you've got to be able to quickly, you know, the wartime triage that frankly, like we're hearing about happening in Italy right now. I'm curious, what advice would you give as somebody with, you know, military experience, army anesthesia experience, and somebody who's in a hospital that can, does have this ability to scale based on that sort of mindset? What word would you want to give to the big academic centers and the bigger, you know, groups here in the States that are trying to like, prepare for this rising tide to be able to address per- perhaps overwhelming patient need?
1: I think because of the unique nature of this disease, the, uh, the infectivity, I think the, one of the first goals that every facility has to have is to maximize protection of their personnel. Because the facilities and all the equipment and all that stuff doesn't matter at all if you don't have effective bodies there to make the machine go. So the first priority in all of these environments has to be protection of the hospital personnel because that populace has a very unique skill set that when taken out, it's not just one domino falling. It's multiple dominoes because the footprint that person will have on making a difference in, in other sick people is it's it's a force detractor. So in the army, we have things that are force multipliers and force detractors. A force multiplier is something that makes one person have the effect of ten people. So like an anesthesiologist is force multiplied by nurse anesthetists, and you know your your nursing staff for any physician in the hospital because they're they make you able to be in like five or six or ten places at the same time. But if those those items aren't supported and you don't have your nurses and you don't have your respiratory uh, therapists and, you know, your anesthesiologist and nurse anesthetist are are sick. Uh, They can't function. So that, you know, that has to be a primary goal of like, you know, protect your personal first. Secondarily, you know, I think that that just knowing what your capabilities are and then figuring out ways to uh, either augment them or move things around or have a, have a trans, fur line to get somebody to a facility that uh you know gets the capabilities that they need now not fortunately, not everybody's going to need ecmo from this but um you know if you're a small community hospital like you have to know you have to make those connections now before it's like you know john q public just showed up and like his lungs are not functioning and he's going to die uh, can we send them to you for ECMO? I was like, well, this is the first time you're calling me. We don't really have any any plan in place for this. So, you know, we've got to answer some questions before this guy shows up and like sheds deadly virus all over our facility. So um, so if the, you know, the community hospital, hospitals haven't had those conversations with the, the bigger centers, then that's a problem. As far as the bigger centers go, um, you know, at the University of Kentucky, we had, they would do these drills every month, every couple months, where it was basically just kind of almost like a mass casualty drill. And it varied from things like, uh, you know, Lexington is a hub of like uh, industrial liquids that come through. And I mean, they've had uh, small but kind of contained things where they've had, you know, like a, you know oil or some sort of like weird hazardous material where they, you know, were kind of spun up and ready to take a, a massive group of patients. I mean, uh, a year or two after I left Lexington, uh, they had a uh, an aircraft go down at, at the Lexington Airport, um, so that was a big mass casualty response. Uh, when I was on call one night, they had a train that derailed um, and was right next to a trailer park. Fortunately, you know, we were were literally probably about. 100 yards from a giant catastrophe, but uh, thanks to the way the the trains had didn't have people on them, they were cargo trains, and where it derailed next to a uh, trailer park, but didn't like invade the trailer park, uh, you know, we we dodged a giant bullet there, but we were prepared for it. I mean, I, when I got the page coming through, like I got everything spun up, I got people in place, like we were ready for, you know, and then it turned out instead of an N of 100, it became an N of two. So that was a little more manageable. Um, so a lot of these, a lot of the bigger facilities have these contingency plans in place. Uh, you know, so they've thought about these things. They've got, got these, but but an infectious disease presents a, a very unique risk relative to something like a. The army prepares for things like this. Chemical attack. I was I was the only anesthesiologist at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, where they have the, uh, the c training, uh, for the army there. So they go through those drills all the time because that's the thing that all of those people have to know how to do. So we set up shuffle pits, we set up decontamination, we set up, uh, you know, educational sessions on how to use the, the, uh, Mark II, two-pam chloride atropine kits. So, um, you know, the, the army, trains for these things a lot we kind of take it for granted active duty folks and we grumble about it because it's like all of this crap that they put on our plate all the time and then like it actually goes down and you're like crap that was useful so um you know so somebody has thought about this somebody's kind of got a game plan for it and uh but just kind of getting the mechanics of like this is how we do this uh that's that's the first round of hiccups where like it it looks ugly you know the the first little bit of it but then you know, once the the numbers start to kind of climb and pile up, then you, you've you got, okay, we did this this way last time, we're gonna do it again, now we're gonna do it again, now we're gonna do it again, so.
0: In your opinion, is is there enough of this type of like mass casualty type training uh, that has happened in our healthcare system that we're gonna be able to adequately deal with some of the, the issues that we're gonna hit, or is this gonna, are a lot of people gonna be obviously probably learning on the job?
1: I think there are two things that are gonna make a big difference in terms of kind of how this plays out. Number one, it's going to make a difference in how the American public treats it, you know. If they are, are like the Italians, and you know, I I was deployed with a lot of Italians, so I've got uh, you know kind of a general feel of, of kind of how the Italian culture is. It's very much a lot of bravado, machismo. Like I can't get sick. This you know, and so I think they really didn't take it serious initially, and really kind of gave it best case scenario for kind of getting out of control. So I think if the American public really, uh, you know, kind of gives it its due, like we're not super afraid of it because like 20 year olds, you know, there's not gonna be a mass of 20 year olds that we're digging graves for. But like, we need to keep it. We need to keep the social contact down because while you might not be afraid of it, like, you know, uh, Bob's, you know, Papa over there, he gonna get killed by it. And it's going to get transmitted more distinctly if we all just kind of say, oh, this isn't so bad. People aren't dying on mass. It's not that people are dying on mass. It's that as it sweeps through a populace, There is a vulnerable population, and you're going to expose them at a higher rate if everybody else acts like, you know, I can't be damaged. I'm 20 years old and I'm bulletproof. Look at me jump off this building. That's great. You know, maybe maybe you're going to land on your feet, but you're going to create enough shockwaves with how you hit because of all the disease vector that you pour out because you got sick because you were a bonehead and now 10 other people are sick and it's a magnifying effect. So I think that's going to really shape how this impacts our healthcare system. And then kind of the last crux of it is how the healthcare workers and, you know, the doctors and the nurses and the, you know, the hospital administrators, how they prepare for it. Cause on the spectrum of, of, you know, what can happen, it, it all ranges from like, everybody's super well prepared and it goes off without a hitch. That's not going to be most hospitals. Most hospitals are going to be kind of somewhere in the middle where they're going to make some mistakes. They're going to, You know, they're going to have some gaffes, um, but learn from it and then adapt quickly. And then the the dangerous ones are going to be the ones on the other end of it that are like scared to death and try to put their head in the sand like an ostrich, you know, and don't uh, don't face it bravely and smartly and try to educate themselves about, you know, proper practices. The CDC has been tremendous. Uh, and, and several university centers, one of uh, my partners uh, went to the University of Washington uh, for, her, for her training. And they've been, University of Washington has very, been very uh, good about putting out like, you know, flow and protocols. And uh, there's an EM uh, critical care uh, doc uh, website that I was looking at today that was fantastic. Uh, that had a very good kind of breakdown of all the things you need to know as a professional to like to understand the pathogen and like how to to get a game plan for it, because um, we're still in those early stages of really learning what the what the the footprint is going to be on our society. But uh, like the things that we know, the things that you need to really plan for, like, you know, uh, started out in the podcast. And so we know it's going to be super contagious because we don't have a herd immunity for it. Uh, And so we need to we need to play that game. Uh, There was a reference that I'd come across where uh, they'd referenced the 1918 flu epidemic in Philadelphia. That didn't do a particularly good job of cutting down on those uh, public gatherings and you know like church services and all the things that got people together, and their uh, mortality rate per hundred thousand at that time I think was at, you know there's reference that are like like uh, two hundred fifty deaths per per hundred thousand, which is not a huge number but still you know that spike in infectivity and, and the populace that was affected was substantial, whereas St Louis. Uh, you know, within a couple of days of, because, you know, they already, they had already seen the experience of what was going on in Philadelphia. There's a lag time, it was about a month. They'd already seen how it was sweeping through Philadelphia and they're like, oh crap, we need to like shut everything down now. So their, their arc of what their disease, uh, you know, foundation was among the populace had, you know, a mortality rate of 50 per 100,000. Well, that's a five fold decrease. Just for a few weeks of like, not going to the, the theater, not going to church, like just kind of hanging out and just, you know, staying close to home. And the, the, the cost of that uh, individual family isn't substantial. You know, in 2020, it may be some lost wages from work that's missed. You know, I, I, I don't know what the answer is for, for families that are um, financial a little bit more uh, at risk but for people that can you know, afford to stay home or like, you know, just, just the obvious things like we, I didn't go to that water park on Saturday because if, if I were to pick a Petri dish or something that's going to transmit virus, I pick a water park. Talk about droplet transmission, but uh, you know, it's just kind of, kind of being smart. You don't, you don't have to be afraid of the world. You don't have to like, you know, outdoor stuff like hiking. Like, you know, I went and went through like the woods or wasn't like open Corona in the woods because the respiratory droplet burden there's not high. It's not a zoonotic infection from you know dogs or cats or deer or whatever. I don't know what sort of wet market stuff they were doing in Wuhan, but you know.
0: Yeah, uh, and that's one of the things I guess that's and even today I, I was talking to a client of mine closer to the Midwest, and they're they're still doing elective cases at all these big uh, hospitals, and they don't they're doing like no additional PPE for even at risk faculty and it's it's so slow this is the thing that frustrates me is it's so slow to see these changes being implemented and unfortunately you know especially in some instances if you have a a surgeon who's got a bunch of elective surgeries lined up there's sort of this inverse incentive you know to to cancel and it's it's a tougher thing to do but in the interest of public health it's it seems like at this point it's a no-brainer and i'm just looking across uh you know, med Twitter and all these, uh, h- how slow it is, even even in this day and age. And it's, 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 uh, it is it's, a little bit like watching that train wreck in slow motion. So I'm, I'm uh, you know, this is just, I think, an opportunity for me to reflect and say I'm really grateful for the people out there on the front lines, people like you, Dr. Farrell, and like my wife here at University of Pennsylvania and all of her colleagues who are going to be um, doing a lot, working a lot of overtime, putting in a lot of hours and a lot of hard work as we see this thing continue to probably pick up steam and, and really putting themselves at risk to try to uh, keep our populace safe. So,
1: yeah, I think that's, that's what makes, you know, military medicine and university medicine different than a lot of the community hospitals. It's like money makes things perverse. And I, I worked in a a small community hospital that was private practice uh, moonlighting when I was uh, was in the military and I got to see a, a little snippet of that. And I got to see, you know, surgeons that were, not necessarily that they were, they were openly willing to sacrifice, you know, the well-being of their patients, but like they were going to make money every chance they got. And unless I saw something that was a clear barrier or like a terrible practice or something that's going to hurt people, then they were just going to do it their way. Damn the torpedoes, you know, make money and like, you know, just take a whiz on everybody else. So um, I have seen that, and that that is an ugly way to practice. It's one of the reasons that I, I didn't go into a, a private practice environment because I didn't want to have to be compromised in, in that that aspect where like money makes decisions for me. Now, at that point, I think it's really up to the administrators to just kind of like because they're they're going to be the final gatekeeper. As much as I I'm not a big fan of strong hospital administration, period, but I think that if they have a role of any kind of gatekeeper guardianship, like if, if there's a part of the machine that can, can stop a, because, you know, physicians are held in a very revered uh, platform, but we're human too. You know, there, yeah. there are things that affect our decision-making you can't function in a vacuum. You have to have other brains chiming in and have the courage to kind of speak up and say, Hey, like, that's not a good idea. Like this thing that you're doing right now, I, this is the the playbook for the the bonehead way to do it. So um, you really have to have somebody, and it's hard. Those communities there, I've been there. Like your kids go to school together. You know, you have barbecues together. Like your your cousin and and you know somebody else's sister are married, so you're related to somebody. So it's a very tight niche group that is very easy to fall into groupthink because you know there's an alpha within that pack and then you know so and so said such and such and that's gospel so um you know that's the the part of what gets weird about it
0: and then it becomes what we see is like least common denominator both medicine and society where it's like oh well so and so is still doing it so it must be okay and that was what's happening for this person i was talking to at this big you know center closer to the midwest where it's like well the big academic place in town is still running electives so the smaller private group is going to keep running electives until the big group says no and then it's like it's abdication of responsibility in my opinion
1: it's too late then that's the problem it's too late then because we don't really know what the incubation period of this thing is right now i'm kind of Mm -hmm. guessing and it might be as it might be as long as like a week or two and that's just going to be absolutely devastating if that's kind of how it plays out. The other thing that I, that I find personally most concerning is that there seem to be a substantial amount of, of patients kind of out in the community that are like infected, shedding virus, showing no clinical symptoms. and that's like a perfect vector for just laying waste to entire populace, because that person's going to have, especially if they're working in the hospital, Cause they're going to have contact with a bunch of, of compromised patients and it's going to get ugly. So I think at least until we kind of get on the downslide of this, I think we really need to, to strongly consider pairing some of those cases. And I, I get that it's, it's hardships on the, the patients that are coming in for these elective surgeries for like, you know, their cataract surgeries, um, you know, that, that, their son's taken off work to take care of them for a day and they have planned to have their follow-up visit, you know, the next week and like all of this stuff's in place and just stop the brakes on that. That's a hardship to the patients. But what's going to be more of a hardship is if this really starts to get out in the community and just bashes everyone like, yeah, I got your eyeball fixed, but now you're fighting for your life on a ventilator. So what was the better decision? And we don't know the answer to that. We don't know. We don't have a crystal ball, but I think, you know, by the time you're reacting to it, it's already too light.
0: Yeah. And there's so much unpredictability. I th- I think more than anything, one thing that this is making me think about, and I'm curious in your perspectives on this, and then we'll wrap it up here, uh, is that it's important to sort of acknowledge our shared humanity and the fact that there's a lot of freaked out people and a lot of vulnerable people and a lot of people who are powerless to improve their own situation or to protect themselves or who don't have an economic safety net. I'm looking around you know, here in University City in Philadelphia where I live, and I could throw a rock and hit... 20 different houses where people don't have six months of savings in the bank and they're working on an hourly job and they're the way that they're thinking about this is uh, it's very different from like me and, and my wife and our household and it's important to acknowledge that and to reach out to people around us and say hey neighbor, friend, family member like we're in this together and maybe we can only talk on the phone instead of hanging out together for a while. but that acknowledgement of shared humanity of saying like, if you need something, I'll give, I don't have a lot, but I'll give you some of what I have and creating that person to person community bond. Again, in a, you know, in this age, it's like, it's dissolved to some extent because of the way we interact electronically, I think. But I think restoring that, it's gonna be part of what makes this easier and better for us to get through as a, as a society, as a community. And uh, I, I think it's as important as it's ever been.
1: Well, I think this is an opportunity uh, for, you know, the America, Germany, the world, because everything's a lot smaller. I mean, I can, you know, before the virus broke out, you know, get on a plane and be back in the United States in, you know, eight, 10 hours. And, you know, the world's, you know, as big as it is, as smaller now as it's ever been. So this is almost like a dry run for like, it's the way we're connected. It's the perfect Petri dish for like something really bad like if we had some sort of like sustainable like Ebola strain that has like a 90% kill rate so how we respond to this now in terms of both kind of the the panic the education the knowledge dissemination really kind of gives us a framework for for how we're going to respond for something that is clinically more significant so we're we're blessed from a standpoint that it, you know for the majority of the population it's not going to be a catastrophic illness but we have an opportunity to to kind of learn the social changes that we need to make to get into a place where if this were a more uh, substantial pathogen that we already know what to do. So, and it's very much in something like this, this is not a, a me item. This is an us item. This is we, this is our community. This is, you know, our world. And so the way we, Respond and learn from this event, or don't learn. You know, will really kind of set the stage for for you know, it's not if, it's when and how bad. Like we're we're, you know, genetic vectors for for bacteria and viruses and all kinds of other things what infect us. And um, you know, it, this is a an example of of how we can work together to to get everybody through this. You know, we see it in the economy. We see you know, stock market going down and panic and. Like that's, that's not the answer. Like there are certain aspects of, of business as usual that can continue on, but you know, but there's certain like things that we do socially that we can modify so that we're helping each other collectively.
0: Dr. Shelley Farrell, thank you very much for joining us today and for sharing your experience on the anesthesia success podcast. Hope to talk to you again soon.
1: Yeah. Well, and then a last little nugget for, for the anesthesia uh, providers out there, like, you know, take care of yourself. I know there's a lot of guidelines that are out for wearing a uh, N95 mask and, and personal protective equipment because I think anesthesia personnel are taking a substantial amount of of exposure and uh, infectivity of of patients exposing the healthcare providers to it. So um, eye protection, the the N95 mask. I mean that's that's what we're doing at our hospital to to cut back on some of those. So um, I know that's going to be a the N95 mask don't have the same prevalence as like the surgical masks, but um, it's it's the onus of the hospital to find you know routes to kind of get that equipment in. And and you know, the military's also learned that like you can reuse these things. Like you can decontaminate the outside of the masks and you know, so you don't have to like use one, throw it away, use it. this isn't Jaco time. This is like pathogen survival time. So um, you know, you can you can decontaminate, you know, masks and and you know reduce that risk. But Um, So the anesthesia people out there, you know, take care of yourself because we we really need the anesthesia people to stay in the fight.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, Dr. Farrell, thank you very much for your time today and your perspective.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Justin.
0: If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to anesthesiasuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesiology and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I would also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast.